0: And here we go, John 4. Yes, John John chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off uh, the last time we were, we were all gathered together looking through the Gospel of John in John chapter 4. And at this point in time, Jesus is leaving Judea in the south and He's heading back north up to Galilee and He passes through a Samaritan village where He... Meets a woman at Jacob's well and has a very famous discussion with her, John chapter four. This is actually a um, this this is actually a story that has been misused many times in in different church settings to uh, to try to portray Jesus in, in a way of, as as being the great women's liberator. In, in this chapter here, and I think he does he liberates everybody. He liberates all kinds of people. And I want to take a look at this, this passage and what it actually says and what it doesn't say about that and, 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 and to try to uh, examine some of the, the claims that people have made in modern modern years about this particular passage. Uh, also, I think there is, there is a story of liberation that's, that's, that's contained here. And uh, this was something that uh, Eusebius, an early Christian writer, opened my eyes up to—something I hadn't seen before. That's really, uh, this, really this passage ties into, and I want to I want to share that uh, in connection with the lesson also. So let's start off reading John chapter four. I'm going to read the first nine verses. Now, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus Himself uh, had, did not baptize but His disciples, He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But He needed to go through Samaria, so He came to a city of Samaria which is called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, the son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being worried from His journey sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So uh, let's, let's just stop right there uh, to understand what's going on. First, a very simple geography lesson. This is super simple uh, for just so you can visualize what's going on. You have in the north is Galilee, which is where Nazareth was, which is where Jesus grew up and where most of the apostles came from. In Galilee in the north. Down in the south, you had Jerusalem, which is where the temple was located. And you have Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And you have uh, Judea down in the south. And in between the two, So there are Jews in the north in Galilee, there are Jews in the south in Judea, but in the middle of the two, there's an area called Samaria, and those people there are Samaritans, they're not Jews. So when people are going from the north to the south or vice versa, they either have to go through Samaria, which is not a Jewish land, or else they have to cross the river and go around around that area, which sometimes people did too. So, uh, very simple geography. Now, the significance of Samaritans in the New Testament. If you think about that, there are a lot of places where the Samaritans are mentioned. Of course, the most famous one was the uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, which Jesus uses uh, that to... Um, Uh, In Luke chapter 10, when he's teaching, what does it mean to love your neighbor? And he uses the example, he tells a story with the Good Samaritan. Why did he pick a Samaritan? Because the Jews and the Samaritans couldn't stand each other. They hated each other. There was tremendous dislike. Uh, In John chapter 4 and verse 9, you can see right here in the discussion, it says... Why are you a Jew talking with me, a Samaritan woman? Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You know why? You, you, you people don't normally talk to us. Even you don't even treat us civilly. Uh, One of the great insults that was uh, given to Jesus in John chapter eight, verse forty-eight. The people say. Isn't it right that you are a Samaritan and demon possessed? I mean, this was like the lowest thing that they could the lowest dirt they can throw on Jesus accusing him of being a Samaritan and then demon possessed on top of it. When Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 sent out the 12 to preach the message of the kingdom to the Jews, he said specifically, don't go the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. He said, only go to the Jews. So uh, there's, a, there's a pretty strong barrier between the two. And Jesus also makes the point, Luke chapter 17, that when the several several people are healed, only one comes back to give thanks. And he says, and that one was a Samaritan which is particularly disturbing to the Jews to hear that story. The only one came back, he was a Samaritan. He says, go, uh, you, your, your faith has made you well. So it's a good example about thankfulness and saving faith where he uses Samaritan again. And even in the book of Acts, when the gospel goes out, in Acts chapter 2, the gospel is going out to the Jews. There are Jews on the day of Pentecost who have gathered from all over the world And Peter preaches the message to them so they're all Jews in the beginning and then gradually over time it goes out to the rest of the world we see in Acts chapter 10 it goes to the household of Cornelius he's not Jewish in Acts chapter 8 there's the conversion of of the Ethiopian eunuch who's from Africa but even before that the first example of people who are not Jewish who come to faith is in Acts chapter 8, and the uh, I think it's the first 15 verses, it talks about the Samaritans are receiving the gospel that many Samaritans were receptive to the gospel. Philip took it there, the apostles took it there, the uh, and you know, Simon the sorcerer was one bad apple, but there were many Samaritans who were receptive to the gospel. So uh, so th- these are the first people outside the Jews to, to receive the gospel. So many, many significant things about the Samaritans in the New Testament. But, you know, I'm, I'm a, a curious person, naturally. I'm wondering, uh, who are the Samaritans? Where did they come from? This woman seer here says she knows that the Messiah is coming. So she's, you know, she's not, they're not complete pagans. She knows that the Messiah, the Christ, is coming. We find out later in the story. So who are the Samaritans? Where did they come from? So a little bit of background here. I just want to step back because I think if you appreciate who the Samaritans are, all these references to the Samaritans will be much more meaningful for you to to understand, appreciate. Now, after the time of Saul and David and Solomon, after Solomon left the kingdom went to Rehoboam, and then it's split into two pieces with uh, Jeroboam taking ten tribes in the north, Rehoboam taking two tribes in the south. And that was uh, 9, 931 years before Christ. So a long time before the time of Jesus. The kingdom that, of David and Solomon is split into two pieces, and the northern kingdom is, the southern kingdom is called uh, Judah, after the most prominent tribe, the northern kingdom is typically called Israel, or sometimes it's called Samaria. So that's the, that's the northern tribe, uh, the ten tribes in the north. And so they continue for about 200 years. The, the northern tr- kingdom, they get involved in idolatry. All the kings are bad, at least in the southern tribes. Some of the kings are good. So they go downhill rapidly. And they only last about 200 years before the Assyrians come and take them away and relocate them. They just they take the Jews out of the Northern Kingdom and they they scatter them and then they bring other people in to replace their land. So I'm going to read uh, uh, some some longer passages back from 2 Kings from when this happened because this will help you to understand who the Samaritans are and. Why there was so much trouble and conflict, and, and why they they believe in in the Messiah, they believe in the Scriptures, but there are problems between them and the Jews. So, let's turn to Second Kings chapter 17. And if you're if you're reading in a, a, uh, in a in a Bible that's based on the Septuagint, it'd be called Fourth Kingdoms, but it's the same book, just different different name to it. And Second uh, Kings 17, I'm going to read verses one to six. So this is this is The northern kingdom getting defeated by the Assyrians and relocated. So those people get taken out and other people are brought in from other nations to take their place. And it causes a bunch of different problems. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea the son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria. And he ruled for nine years. So he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel before him. Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up against him. Now Hoshea was his servant and paid tribute to him. And the king of Assyria found scheming in Hoshea. He had sent messengers to Segor, the king of Egypt, but in that year they did not bring any tribute back to the king of Assyria. Therefore the king of Assyria besieged him and bound him in prison. Now the king of Assyria marched through the entire land. He went up to Samaria and besieged him for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea. The king of Assyria took Samaria and exiled Israel to Assyria, where he placed them along the rivers of Gozan and Hala and in Habor and on the mountains of the Medes. For the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. But still they came to fear other gods and walk in the very customs of the nations the Lord had cast out before the face of Israel, before the kings of Israel who did this. So many sons of Israel clothed themselves with the customs contrary to the Lord and built for themselves high places in all their cities by the use of the watchtowers guarding the fortified cities. So, Israel had become corrupt. They became just like the nations around them. And Assyrians came, laid siege, defeated them, and then uprooted them, took them out of their own land, and settled them in other places. But, what they did is rather than leave the empty land empty, what the Assyrians did was they would relocate people, they'd move them around. So uh, I, I guess this was probably to defeat any attempt of people to want to regain their independence and reclaim their land. So they they, they relocated them to other lands. So in verse 24, so the, the people in Israel were moved out by the Assyrians. And then, you see, see what else happened. Verse 24, Then the king of Assyria brought from Babylon the people out of Kutha, and from Ava, from Hamath, and from Sephirothim, and they settled in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. They gained possession of Samaria and inhabited their her cities, and it came to be in the beginning of the settlements they did not fear the Lord. And the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So it was told the king of Assyria, saying, The nations you exiled, even those you settled in the cities of Samaria, do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he sent lions among them, and behold, the lions are killing them, because they don't know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take from the exiles those that came from the place, and let them go and settle there they will enlighten them concerning the rituals of the God of the land. So they brought one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria. He came and dwelt in Bethel, and he enlightened them on how they should fear the Lord. So um, it's a wild story. They, they, uh, they relocate the people in Israel. They bring in people from other nations into Samaria, and lions start killing them. So these people are from other lands, and they say, well, Maybe the God of this land, we're not worshiping him in the right way. And that's why these lions are killing us. So they petitioned, the king sent uh, a priest back in the land to teach them, no, here's how you worship Jehovah in this land. The God of this land, here's how you worship. So they were worshiping Jehovah as the priest instructed them. But on the other hand, is they were also worshiping the gods that they had beforehand. So they're kind of a half-breed people spiritually. They're they're a bit mixed up and confused spiritually. So these are the people who took over the land that had been the kingdom of Israel. And uh you know, perhaps they re- they intermarried with whoever was left behind, but it was it was a it was a mixed confused Uh, Religion of people who did fear God, but but they were not pure by any means. Um, When the Jews, when finally the Southern Kingdom was taken into captivity later by the Babylonians, and then Cyrus, the king of the Persians, finally returns them. And uh, during the time of Ezra, uh, Zerubbabel, uh, it's about uh, 536 BC. They come back, and they want to, you know, Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Babylonians, so the first thing they want to do is rebuild the temple. Let's turn to Ezra chapter 4. And for those who have uh, uh, the Old Testament's based on the Septuagint, this would be 2nd Ezra chapter 4. So pay attention. I'm just going to read the first four or five verses here. Now, when those oppressing Judah and Benjamin... Heard the sons of captivity were building a house to the Lord God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, We will rebuild with you, for we seek as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' house of Israel said to them, it is not for us and you to rebuild the house of God, for we ourselves will rebuild it to the Lord our God, as Cyrus, king of the Persians, commanded us. But the people of the land were weak, were weakening the hands of the people in Judah and were hindering them from building, and hiring people to work against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia, even till the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So, people come back, the Jews come back from captivity in Babylon to rebuild the temple, and there are people there, these people who've been resettled, they say, we'd like to help you. We want to rebuild the temple along with you because we, since the days when the Assyrians put us here, we've been worshiping the same God as you. So can we help you rebuild the temple? And the answer from the Jews is no thank you. We don't want your help. Cyrus told us to rebuild the temple and we're going to rebuild the temple and you can't help us. And so uh, there's friction at that point between the two groups, the, the, the people who were settled there trying to hinder them from rebuilding the temple. So you see there's this tension between the groups. So these are the Samaritans, people who'd been resettled from other nations by the Assyrians who dwelt in this land and who picked up, uh, faith in the God of the Jews. Um, when we were in the Middle East two weeks ago, Alice and I, um, we were talking with some people who came out of Muslim backgrounds who were Christians, and one of them, who is particularly well-read, was asking me a question. And he said, he said, are there any histories Independent of the Bible, which talk about the, the Jesus is actually being an historic character who was crucified on the cross, are, are they outside of the Bible? or there is there anything from that period of time which which talks about Jesus? And uh, you know he's they're they're in discussions with Muslims and they're being challenged about about things. And so he wanted to know are there are other sources. And I said, well, actually there is. There's one called. Josephus is a Jewish historian who wrote a book called Antiquities of the Jews. He lived in Galilee, which is where Jesus is from. He lived just a few years after Jesus, and he talks about the story of Jesus, and he wrote a book called, he was there when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and he wrote a series of books called Antiquities of the Jews, where he's explaining the Jewish history to the Romans. And In in book 11 of Antiquities of the Jews, in chapter 8, he tells the story about the Samaritans. And he explains the stories. He said the Samaritans... Now, the Samaritans were not allowed to help the Jews rebuild their temple. He said the Samaritans wanted to build their own temple in their own land on Mount Gerizim, uh, an exact replica of the temple in Jerusalem. And so, according to Josephus they got alexander the great to authorize them when alexander the great came and conquered that part of the world three hundred thirty years before christ they asked alexander if they will be it will be okay to build a temple on mount gerizim mount gerizim was the, the biggest mountain in samaria mount gerizim you may remember also is mentioned by moses in the old testament moses said when you cross into the promised land there are two mountains, and I want half of the tribes to go up one mountain, and half of the tribes to go up the other mountain. Mount Gerizim, you're going to pronounce the blessings of God if you follow the covenant, and Mount Ebal, you're going to pronounce the curses from God if you don't follow the covenant. So, these are people who they said Mount Gerizim, that's where the, that's where Moses said to go for the blessing. So they're going to put the they're going to put their temple on Mount Gerizim. So. They built, uh, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, uh, and Jacob's well is right at the foot of Mount, Mount Gerizim, the location of Jacob's well where this story takes place. About 200 years after the temple was built, then uh, Josephus explains, uh, after it was about 200 years after it was built, about 128 B.C., the John Hyrcanus, who was the high priest of the Jews... Comes with an army and destroys Samaria and wipes out the temple. So that doesn't create a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings again between the Jews and the Samaritans that the Jewish high priest led the army that destroyed the temple of the Samaritans. There was a, so the bottom line there's a big, there's a strong historic animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. They're living in the same part of the world. They're both. Trying to follow the law of Moses, and the Samaritans had their own version in their own language of the law of Moses, called the Samaritan Pentateuch. And it, you can, if you, you'll see, in footnotes in the Old Testament, that, that sometimes it will say Masoretic text says this, but Septuagint and Ma, and, and the uh, the the uh, uh, Samaritan Pentateuch say that. So they had their own version, which was very highly respected uh, of the of the Old Testament as well. Uh, and uh, actually Eusebius Eusebius is talking about this, he says actually that's an extremely accurate version it's based on an older version than the Hebrew versions that were around in his day, so Eusebius said the Septuagint was the best version Samaritan Pentateuch was the second and then the the Hebrew scriptures were the third in terms of truest to the original So, uh, so anyway, they had the scriptures they had the law of Moses in a fairly accurate form so Let's go back to the story, a little bit of background on this, and I think it'll help us, because when she says, our forefathers worshipped God on this mountain, now you know what they're talking about. So, So let's go back to the story again. The woman, the Samaritan woman, is surprised that Jesus is speaking with her. And what I have heard people say in pulpits more than once in the past is, The reason that she was surprised is because in those days men would not speak with women in public settings. And um, so that Jesus is breaking the paradigm, he is liberating women, he's talking to women, he's treating them as equals, blah, blah, blah. So a couple problems with that line of thinking. So Jesus is presented as the great liberator of women as exemplified by the fact that he reached out to and spoke with The woman here. okay. The first thing the text says very clearly she says why are you speaking with me because Jews don't speak with Samaritans. It wasn't because she was a woman that it was an issue. It was because she was a Samaritan because Jews and Samaritans couldn't stand each other. They didn't get along with each other. That was the reason. And after all How many examples are there in the Old Testament that you can think of right off the top of your head where Jewish men were speaking with women that they didn't know and there was no scandal involved in it? This happens all over the the scriptures. Uh, Abraham's servant speaks with Rebekah, who's a total stranger in Genesis 24. In Exodus 2, Moses goes into the wilderness, and the, the daughters of Jethro, the Midianite, he rescues them and helps them out when they're being harassed by the bad shepherds. In Joshua chapter 2, the two spies talk with Rahab. In 1 Samuel 25, David speaks with Abigail, who provides him and David and his men, they speak with Abigail, who provides them with food and drink, and then, of course, Elijah and, and uh, Elisha. In 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings chapter 4, the widow of Zarephath, uh, Elisha speaks with a poor widow and helps her with the oil, and then and then uh, raises a uh, the Shunammite woman. Tells her she's going to have a son, and then raises him from the dead. So there are plenty of examples of Jewish prophets who spoke with other women. So the idea that this was Jesus was breaking custom by speaking with a woman in public. There's just nothing to support that at all. If you know the Old Testament very well, you know that there's plenty of examples of that. So uh, this, is, this is a fabrication, it's a fiction. Uh, now, while, on the one hand, while the idea that Jesus speaking with a woman was breaking with social custom is nonsense, uh, because men and women spoke throughout the scriptures, the New Testament does make, the New Covenant does make some changes in the relationships between men and women. One obvious one is Jesus in his teaching about marriage, he says anybody who marries somebody who's already married is guilty of committing adultery. So Jesus slams the door on polygamy. so in the old in the Old Testament, a man could have multiple wives and uh, so Jesus, Jesus killed polygamy worldwide in his teaching on that, so that it would be one man and one woman going back to God's original plan. So that was, I'm sure, a blessing for women right there. Uh, the idea that uh, Moses said if a man wants to divorce his woman, a woman, all he has to do is write her a certificate of divorce, and Jesus says no, that marriage is permanent, that marriage is, is, uh, is until death do you part. And you can only divorce somebody in the case of immorality. So uh, Jesus is really upholding the, uh, the sanctity and the permanence of marriage, which is a blessing to women also. And then in the New Testament, of course, it talks in, in Ephesians chapter 5 and other places about God's expectation for husbands <coughs> is that they are not only to be the spiritual leaders of their families, but they are to lay down their lives for their wives. They are to present them as a radiant bride. That the example they're supposed to follow the example of Christ in the church. So, there were definitely changes that took place from the old covenant to the new covenant. But it wasn't men taught and men all of a sudden talking to women that they never never talked to before. That's not the case. Um, okay, let's continue John chapter four and verse ten. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks this water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become to him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst or come here to draw. So uh, this is, Jesus is using a play on words. Just like when he said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. They're thinking the building. He's talking about his body. Jesus is in a well here, and he says, If you knew who I was, you'd ask me to give you a drink of living water, and you'll never thirst again. And she's confused and is thinking, Well, this is some kind of magic water that if you drink it, uh, that uh, you don't have to keep coming down to this well and going all the way down and fetching the water. You know, uh, this is in the days before uh, piped plumbing, so water is, water is very heavy. It's uh, 62.4 pounds per cubic foot. I know this is a water engineer. It's very heavy. Uh, and hauling water, if you've ever tried to haul a, uh, you know, a five-gallon five uh, bucket of water, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot. It's very heavy. And uh, so this is a tremendous burden to be lifting water and going down to a well and drawing it out of a deep well. So uh, Jesus says... I would give you living water. And what is that talking about, the living water? Well, he explains it later on in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. It says, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this... He spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the the living water is a figure of speech, is an expression about the Holy Spirit, which would be given to Christians in the future, to Jesus' followers. We'll talk more about that. Later on, but he's he's referring to the Holy Spirit as like living water, like a fountain that's welling up from the inside to to uh, to spiritually sustain us. Uh, you now, those of us who come from uh, Church Christ backgrounds here, there is a noticeable lack of teaching on the Holy Spirit, and uh, it's not by Coincidence that that's the case in the churches of Christ. Back about a hundred years ago, there was a reaction, a strong reaction against Pentecostalism and emotional, experience, subjective-based religion. And so, what the what what happened in the churches of Christ? They overreacted, overcorrected to the point where they they so de-emphasized the Holy Spirit that they basically said, "Well, the Holy Spirit inspired, inspires the Scriptures, and that's it." So just study the Bible, even to the point it's hard for us to believe it, denying the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So I think we don't need to overreact against other groups that are, that are taking things too far in one extreme or the other. The Bible talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. It's all over the book of Acts, a lot of it in the Gospel of John. So we'll, we'll be taking a look at that more as we go further. But Jesus here is talking about that he will give the Holy Spirit that is a, that's like a spring of water welling up on the inside in fulfillment of prophecy. So let's continue in verse 16. So Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You've said well I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I per- perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So, Jesus tells the woman about her whole life all the men that she has been with, and I don't know whether she was married and divorced or they all died one after another or, or what, but he tells her whole life story uh, to her, and the woman realizes based on that that this, this must be a prophet of God. This must be a man from God. So she asks him the big spiritual question, and she asks it is a multiple-choice question with two choices. She says, okay, Our forefathers said we're supposed to worship God on this mountain, which is Mount Gerizim, which is where the temple of the Samaritans was built. But the Jews say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, where the Jewish temple is. And she asks him, he's a prophet of God, which one's the correct answer? Where are we supposed to worship? Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? Which one? And now, any other Jewish prophet would have considered this to be an easy question and would have said, Jerusalem. That's the right answer. You're supposed to worship God in Jerusalem. Why would they know that? Deuteronomy chapter 12 goes into that. It says, God says specifically, you will worship God in one place and it will be the place where I tell you. That's where your sacrifices are going to be. That's where you're going to worship me. One place, not wherever you feel like it. Not like the nations around you on every hill. It's going to be in one specific place. And then that place was later identified as Jerusalem where the temple was built. So no question about it. Why doesn't Jesus just say the right answer? Which any other prophet who knew the law of Moses would have said. It's Jerusalem. Instead, he kind of, he evades the question and answers a totally different question. He says... He doesn't say the place where you worship God is Jerusalem. He says in the future. In the future, it's not going to be either one. The time is coming when, he says, first of all, you worship what you don't know, salvation from the Jews. So he affirms that, that the plan, that God's salvation is coming through the Jews but he says, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. It's not going to be a matter of this location or that location. It's going to be in spirit and truth. I read something recently by Eusebius, who's writing around the year 325. He's an early Christian, Christian writer, he's an historian. And he explained something in connection with this that I never thought about before. He said, Listen, there's a problem with the law of Moses, he's explaining this to the Jews the law of moses could not have gotten the job done it's impossible because god promised to abraham in genesis 22 in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed and in genesis 49 the prophecy to judah which we we covered when we went through genesis a genesis series recently it says to him, referring to the offspring of Judah, will be the obedience of the nations or the Gentiles. Throughout the book of Isaiah, it talks about the Gentiles will be seeking him. Uh, In Isaiah 42, it says he'll be a light to the Gentiles. In Isaiah 11, it says the Gentiles will seek him. Jeremiah 16, it says that the Gentiles, the nations will come from the ends of the earth. So God's plan is to bless all the nations of the earth. However, Eusebius points out there's there's a problem in the law of Moses. It's impossible for the nations to follow this. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, in Deuteronomy it says that there's one place on the face of the earth where men are to worship God, not wherever they want. In Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 and 17, it says that all men were to appear in Jerusalem three times a year. In Leviticus 12, verses 6 and 7, it says that after a woman has a child, she must bring an offering to the tabernacle or the temple on the eighth day. Now, let's think about this. If the law of Moses was the way that people were going to be saved, this is impossible. The only people that can possibly follow this are Jews who live somewhat close to the temple in Jerusalem the whole world could never follow this. can you imagine every 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 mother in the world within eight days of childbirth beating a path to Jerusalem to go to the temple from you know Tierra del Fuego and Tasmania? just no way it's not gonna happen okay this was destined to fail this could or all the men in the world who are following God, to make it to Jerusalem on three festivals a year. That's impossible. Eusebius says the law of Moses couldn't have, could not have been the vehicle by which all the nations were blessed because it's impossible for them to follow it. The only way out of this problem was in what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18. He said, after me, a prophet will come like me. And you must do everything he says. The prophet, like Moses, Moses was the only prophet who came in with a new law, new instructions. So this would be a new prophet bringing in a new law with new instructions to the people. And it would have to be new instructions about worship because everybody can't fit in Jerusalem. That's just not going to happen. So the law of Moses was destined to be set aside. In Jeremiah chapter 31, or you can, if you're following in a, a Bible based on the Septuagint, it's uh, chapter 38 because of the order is a little different. Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31, or in the Septuagint, it's chapter 38, starting in verse 31. See, it even says this in the Old Testament. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I shall make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with the fathers in the day I took hold of their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not abide by my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will surely put my law into their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be as God to them, and they shall be my people. Each shall not teach his neighbor... And each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their wrongdoings, and I will no longer remember their sins. So God says, I'm going to bring about a new covenant, and it's going to have new laws. So the law of Moses, which never could have been followed by all the nations of the world, was destined to be replaced, and it even says it in the Old Testament. So when Jesus says that the time is coming and is now here when the answer is not going to be Mount Gerizim and it's not going to be Jerusalem because it's going to be people who are worshipping the Father in spirit and truth. Basically, he's saying, I'm the one who's come to supersede the law of Moses, that no longer do we look for the law of Moses for the answer. I'm the prophet who came like him, who's bringing a new covenant and a new law. John chapter 4, let's continue, verse 27. And at this point his disciples came, they were marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do with the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there were still four more months, and do you not say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look to the fields. They are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For when this saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into that labor. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And and they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now after two days he departed there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, Having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus has gathers a following in Galilee. I'm sorry, it's not in in Samaria. And he says that uh, it's interesting. He says that the uh, prophet has no honor in his own country, is that, that uh, he was received much better by the people of Samaria than he was in Galilee by the people who knew him much better. Um, the thing that inspires me that Jesus says here is he says, My food, just like he was making a play of words about water, to talk about living water, The he says... Uh, The disciples want him to eat, and he says, I have plenty of food. So they're trying to to figure out, well, where did he get the food from? He says, no, no, the food that I have, the food that sustains me, is to do the work my father has prepared for him. That Jesus is driven and sustained by doing the work that his father gave him. Um, This is what keeps him going. This is what energizes him. Uh, this is this is the fuel for his life is doing his father's will. The, the problem that I see in, in the lives of many Christians is that's not what sustains them. What sustains them is, you know what sustains them is living for the weekend, living for the vacation, living for retirement, uh, living for comfort, living to take a break, and basically being consumed by self-seeking and seeking comfort and laziness rather than being consumed by the, by the work of the Father. This is what kept Jesus going. He wanted to do the work. There's a lot of work to be done in the world. Jesus said, "They asked the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into the harvest field, and that's what that's what motivated Jesus, and that's what kept him going. And then he challenged the people. He says, open up your eyes and look at the fields. They are white for the harvest. And Jesus' attitude was, other people have done the planting and watering. And I think he's referring to the prophets here, that they did the spade work. They did the hard work of preparing the field, but now there's a field that's white for the harvest. And he encouraged his the disciples to open up their eyes and see the harvest and to participate in the harvest. So I think uh, one one question I would ask anybody here is, do you believe that the fields were white for the harvest when Jesus was speaking, but they're not today? Or do you really believe that the fields are white for the harvest today, that there are people around us who are truth seekers in unlikely places who just need the message of the kingdom spread to them by people who love them and care about them. Uh, do you really believe that there are people out there who are, who are ready to be reaped for a harvest for eternal life? That others have done the spade work and the preparation, but, uh, but uh, we need to be the harvesters. I think one of the things that, uh, that really hurts Christians a lot is they really believe that no one around them is, is open. There aren't any open people because if they were, they'd surely be knocking on our door or turning themselves into us. No, you need to get involved in their lives and share the word of God with them and plant the seed and then water it and let it grow. And uh, so that that's a challenge that I get out of this passage here is to be consumed with the spirit of Jesus that the thing that, that feeds me and motivates me is doing the work and bringing in the great harvest, and, and opening up my eyes and seeing that the fields are white for the harvest, to see something beyond what it looks like on the surface. So we'll, we'll stop there, and we'll pick it up in, uh, in, in uh, the end of John chapter 4, our next time together. Okay. Amen.